welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Here we go. Good morning, everybody. Welcome into Soccer Morning on a Thursday. Should be a good show today. Hope you're having a fine morning. It is ugly and gray and just nasty uh, here where I am, but that doesn't mean we can't have some fun talking about soccer today. I, I, I don't know. I'm feeling, I'm feeling, feeling kind of untethered in the world. Uh, lots of questions in your in my life. I don't know how your life is going, but yeah, just just don't know which direction I want to head in sometimes. But we're gonna head in the soccer direction right now. Talk about uh, a couple of different things today. We've got uh, David Cartledge from over in Spain. He'll uh, touch on uh, the Clasico coming up this weekend. Will you know Messi make it? Is Neymar the best player in the world? Uh, what else is happening in Spain? Rafael Benitez feeling the heat at Real Madrid. Uh, other questions swirling around Spanish football. Again, a two-team race in La Liga. So there you go. Also on this program, good friend of mine, Pablo Maurer, MLS, MLSist on Twitter. You should know his work at MLSsoccer.com, covering DC United uh, most of the time. He does other things, and we'll get to that. And also at DCist.com. He is also the man behind the fantastic abandoned, uh, uh, what's what's it called? Abandoned DC, but he goes all over the the, the Eastern Seaboard, uh, visits these abandoned uh, facilities, takes amazing pictures, writes up stories. Uh, in addition to his soccer work, you should absolutely be checking that out. And he's uh, one of the co-hosts of Open Wide for Some Soccer, which you can find on Backhill.com. Pablo's going to join us to talk about his long-form piece on Team America. And if you're not familiar with the story of Team America, well, go read Pablo's piece it's about a, an attempt to make a national team project work as a club team within the NASL, the original NASL, back when uh, that league was in the death throes. It's a fascinating story, lots of interesting insight into how it went and where it went wrong. So I'm very excited to talk to Pablo uh, coming up after we talk to David Cartledge, and then we will squeeze in some of your phone calls as well because that is what we do. That is what we do. If you're looking for an update on the YouTube uh, situation, the video situation, we're still working out some technical kinks. I hope to be back tomorrow. Uh, we'll just stay tuned on that. My apologies for the, the video situation. We are working diligently to bring that back to you because I know you just you miss my face. You miss my face. Let's hit some news uh, before we call up David Cartledge. PSG will wear shirts with the phrase, Je suis Paris. In a tribute to the 129 victims of last Friday's terrorist attacks, they'll uh, wear that underneath their uh, PSG badge for the next three matches. Uh, a, a fine tribute there uh, to the, the to the victims of the uh, Paris terrorist attacks. I imagine we'll see some more tributes. Uh, we've already had, you know, uh, the moment of silence uh, has gone around the world. We did. Uh, the, unfortunately, the problem with the moment of silence is that when it's done right and it's done respectfully, it it, it it's not memorable. I mean, it can be if you're in the stadium, but I think for the for those of us who were removed and maybe just see it, I think events at Wembley is one are one thing, and 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 England fans singing La Marseillaise is one thing, but the moment of silence gets if it's done right, it's not it's not notable except for it's a it's a nothing, right? When somebody screams something or yells something or does something stupid, like in Green Bay that Aaron Rodgers had to comment about. Or in Turkey, where some people decided to use that moment of silence uh, to, to scream out some some terrible things. I, uh, I, you know, that's what we remember, and I really hope, 
that there are other tributes and other uh, shows of solidarity that come to the forefront and and stick out in our minds, and we don't end up, uh, you know, end up remembering those bad moments. Arsene Wenger is calling for better drug testing in football. The Arsenal manager wants better drug testing and has called for blood tests to be taken as a matter of routine. He said, I'm open to talking to the FA, of course. I want deeper, better tests because what we test is superficial. We have to tackle these problems. He said uh, in L'Equipe that he has never injected my uh, never injected my players to make them better, but he has had been uh, he has seen teams he's faced not in that frame of mind. You see the doping problems uh, that has suddenly turned up in track and field. We have a problem in cycling, and to think that in football we are immune because they are football players is absolutely absolutely wrong. When people are caught, they should be punished, and the club should punish as well because it's a little bit unreasonable to think that just because we're football, we have no problems with it. Uh, certainly, out in front here. Uh, of, a, of, a, of something that's been lagging in, in world football, and that's addressing uh, doping in the, in the game. It, it's happening. It is, people. Just it is happening, uh, whether you want to believe it or not. Uh, it's a matter of whether or not how far we go to test it, uh, whether or not we can stomach it. Uh, it. It's it's certainly one of the lesser problems. I mean, I'm not making it nothing, but it's one of the lesser problems facing world football with corruption and match fixing uh, and the like. Uh, Adidas CEO Herbert Heiner wants age and term limits for FIFA president. He says the work of the president should be overseen by a supervisory board. These are the first proposals from Adidas since the corruption scandal broke. And, of course, Adidas is a major partner of, of FIFA, has been providing FIFA match ball since 1970. Uh, you remember the Telstar. And, and, and this is uh, a company with deep, deep ties to the governance of world football, and if the CEO of, of Adidas is saying something like that, uh, then perhaps FIFA will have to stand up and listen. We shall see. Garth Lagerway, general manager of the Seattle Sounders, has confirmed reports that Stanford striker uh, Jordan Morris has received the richest homegrown contract offer in MLS history. He has yet to sign said contract offer, but the full report by um, uh, the full report over at uh, SeattleTimes.com by Matt Pence. Outlines a little bit more about their chase for Jordan Morris. Of course, Jordan Morris, several call-ups to the U.S. men's national team, has a goal against Mexico, has some some pretty uh, strong moments uh, for his senior-level career, despite only being an amateur at this point. Uh, they have been chasing him for four, for three or four years now at this point after uh, he moved to Stanford as a freshman. Uh, he has not wavered in his commitment to starting his pro career in Seattle, but he has yet to sign the deal. His dad... Michael is the club is the club's medical director, the Seattle Sounders medical director. Barcelona faces a difficult question regarding Lionel Messi ahead of this weekend's Clasico against Real Madrid. Of course, we're going to talk to David Cartledge about this. The Argentine is recovering from damaged ligaments suffered in late September against Las Palmas. Barcelona are on a four-game winning streak right now without Lionel Messi. So uh, again, Luis Enrique has some um, wiggle room here. He could he could start with Lionel Messi on the bench. Of course, it is the biggest game of the season so far. That uh, you don't want to risk the health of Lionel Messi certainly long term. You want to make sure that he is 100% fit before you bring him back and start to really put some burden on him. You have Neymar, you have Suarez, you have plenty of talent in that Barcelona team. They can get the job done without Lionel Messi. But, of course, if you have him, you want to use him. Here's an interesting story. Transparency International says that only 14 of 209 FIFA Football Associations meet minimum standards for transparency. 14 out of, 100, out of 209. U.S. soccer is not in that list of 14. 
Transparency International released its findings on Wednesday after searching for information about every association and federation online. Intriguingly, it says 81% of member nations have no financial records publicly available and that only 14 nations, quote, publish the minimum amount of information necessary to let people know what they do, how they spend their money, and what values they believe in. Uh, in order to meet the standards set by Transparency International, the 209 nations, excuse me, have to have four publicly available standards. By the way, I'm checking this out from uh, SB, uh, SBI Soccer, Soccer by Ivis. Um, they have to have audited financial accounts released, an annual activity report, a code of conduct, and organizational statutes. And right now, the United States is not one of those uh, associations. A little troubling there. Certainly would like to see a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit more transparency out of our out of our governing body. Let's take a break. When we come back, David Cartledge will join us. We'll talk some Spanish football. The, the Clasico this weekend. It's his happening. Real Madrid, Barcelona. It's going down at the Bernabeu. We'll talk about it. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning on a Thursday. Very happy to have on the phone line with us good friend of the show, the regular contributor David Cartledge, covers Spanish football for a couple of outlets, and you can find him on Twitter at David, J-A-C-A. David, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be joining you. Are you ready, are you ready for the Classico? I mean, that's certainly the headline here. Yeah, man, I'm ready. I'm ready. I think everybody else is ready is too. So yeah, it's exciting. Well, is is Real Madrid ready? Is Barcelona ready? And is Lionel Messi ready? Um, I would say that Barcelona, I think, to 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 wrap it all up, are ready with or without Messi. I think they're ready. Real Madrid, I think, need to decide on 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 their game plan. How they're going to go? Uh, are they going to attack or are they going to stick to what they've been doing this season? being very cautious. So that's the big decision they've got. They're the big decisions what's got to be made. Yeah, you know, certainly um, the approach for Real Madrid will be interesting. There's enough firepower for Barcelona, regardless of whether or not Messi starts or, or plays at all. Uh, they certainly want him on the field. It gives them an, you know, the, uh, makes them a better team. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but they've been, they've been rolling here without him. Uh, we know Neymar has sort of emerged and, and is getting some, some consideration as one of the best players in the world at, uh, at this point. But for Real Madrid, this is this is a this is a really really. I mean, it's 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 November, David. But considering Liga, it's huge for them. They go down six points in the league. That that mean they may not be coming back from that. Yeah, it's it's, it's difficult. You know, it's six points. I think in other leagues, say it was in the Premier League. I think you maybe look at it and think, okay, not much to it. They'll get it back maybe over the winter break. They'll get back in the new year when they recover players. But in the Liga, these differences are huge, even if it's three points. And, and, and things like that, these games really, really count. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big gap. It's, it's more than, than, than they would like. And if Real Madrid were to lose, it really would be a crisis as well, especially after the fact before the, before the break, they, they went down to Sevilla as well. And, I mean, one loss uh, or a draw in Real Madrid world is huge news. 
two losses on the bounce. Oh my word! Like I can't explain how uh, how, how the, the panic stations in Madrid. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that when he was hired, there was some question about. Rafa Benitez and his fit at the Bernabeu, and now, and I'm not sure there was ever any bloom on the rose to begin with, uh, based on on who he is and his his particular background and, and CV. But it, now it's it, it is getting to the point where some real pressure. And should Real Madrid lose this game, especially at home, um, with the potential to kind of see the league uh, the the league go away, the possibility of winning the the title go away, uh, are we talking about a some some sort of shakeup? Um, for them, come come uh, you know come Monday. Um, I think it would have to be a, a, a crushing defeat. I mean, like a, a real embarrassment. I'm talking about the old Manita, the other you know five goals they would have to get beat by. I think it would have to be significant for for Real Madrid to move um, in that way because you know Florentino Perez he, he opted for Rafa Benitez. It's, it was his petition to get him in. So I think he will stick by them unless something major happened. Um, and, the, and the weekend after they play and inform Ibar as well, which maybe not many people are looking at right now, but you know, if we don't want to get a bad result in, in the class, uh, Classico, and then they have to go to Ibar the, the week after this, who are in form, and you know, in that little cramped stadium with those fans right on top of you, it could be added pressure you don't need after playing your, your greatest rivals. Mm. Uh, let's uh, so let's uh, before we move on to some other topics. Uh, you know, you addressed uh, the question uh, of Messi, but but in general, how are things for Barcelona right now? Again, you know, talking about Neymar, we know about Suarez. Uh, they they certainly have seemed to have uh, found their feet under Luis Enrique. Where's uh, where where do things sit right now for Barcelona? Yeah, they they they're in a really really good position. Look, when you can go into a game against uh, your biggest rivals. Um, against another one of the teams who are seen as one of the best in the world, and you can say, I reckon we could win this game even without our without the best player in the world right now, or the best player of all time for some people. Then you are in a very good position. And for me, Barcelona can go into that game with Neymar and Suarez and be confident of coming out with three points and scoring goals. There's a few problems maybe on the on the back foot as they always have been in terms of the yeah. defensively. They, when a team goes for them directly, then problems can be caused. Okay, but I think the positives certainly outweigh the negatives. The negatives, they're in very, very good shape right now, Barcelona. They should be very confident with or without Messi. Uh, what about uh, what about Rakitic? What, what is his role, and is he ready to come back as well? Yeah, I think he's going to be. I think he's going to be ready as well, and and, and he's a, he's an important player in a game like this because Real Madrid are very much built on on, on physical strength and how they can dominate you in midfield. They're, they're not going to try and play you off the field under Rafa Benitez. It's going to be a, it's going to be the long game. It's going to be stamina, and and Rakitic is one of the fittest players in the league. You know, when he's when he when he's on his game, he's he's brilliant. He can run anybody else into the ground, so he could be very important uh, in this game. Even if he doesn't start, he could. Come on later on and, and be a great impact on um, the last thirty minutes or so. We we look we we know that things are never completely settled at Real Madrid, no matter how much success they're having. I mean, biggest club in the world, perhaps, and, and, and all of this attention and the bright lights and certainly the press that covers the team doesn't make it easy either, David. Um, but but it seems that there's been a particular amount of unsettledness when it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo and, and whether or not, I, I can never tell is he is he happy is he not it seems as though he's not is he going to move is that even possible I mean, what, what's the situation right now I think with, uh, with Cristiano it's a case of you know in this case of will you or won't you and, and to me it looks like it's uh, like a case of Zlatan Ibrahimovic he isn't out that, that he that he said I'm leaving 
but it's kind of it's underneath the surface and it certainly looks like it and, and the reports that have come out in the last day it looks like Real Madrid are going to make a decision in the summer it's either going to be Cristiano Ronaldo to go or it's going to be Gareth Bale to go mm-hmm. it'll depend maybe how they view it and how who offers the most money for which player you know if Manning United come again with 100 million for Gareth Bale that's probably going to be Bale it's going to go I mean you look at Cristiano's performances in the big games so far this season you know when he was against PSG he was in the shop window then figuratively and he was really really poor he, he looked like, a, he, like he was in decline and, and look Cristiano's still a great player he's got a lot more to give but would you want to plump for maybe 80 100 million on him right now plus yeah. all of his wages look over that it would be a major decision I think for any team so sure but it might be the more understandable asset to sell. Well, but, uh, you know, this is this being modern football, you you slap a PSG shirt on Cristiano Ronaldo and put, uh, you know, put his name on the back of it, they're going to sell a lot of those shirts, uh, David. And, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so yeah. that's obviously a consideration. How how many clubs are legitimately in, in, in the, you know, in the race should either uh, Bale or Ronaldo become available? I mean, what, two, three? Yeah, it's a very small number. I think for Bale, people will look upon him because of his age and what he can give in the future. Maybe there might be a few more suitors. For, for Cristiano, you, you look past PSG, and it's very difficult to see where he could go. You'd be surprised if Manchester United moved for him, given their policy in the last few years of buying younger players who they can polish up and maybe sell on later on, or, or they can polish up for the future for themselves. So Cristiano doesn't really fit that mould anymore. And as much as it's a nice idea that he goes back to that club where he made his name, it's a lovely idea, but it just doesn't look feasible with Manchester United's position at the moment. So it pretty much looks like PSG or or bust. (laughs) Well, if you're PSG, I mean, you know, I'm just reasoning this out. If you're PSG, I I mean, I suppose it would come down to... Uh, you know how how much will uh, how much Real Madrid wants to hold on to, to Ronaldo, but if it, if he's on if he's not happy, if he's t- pushing his way out the door, even if it's sort of behind the scenes, and, and and PSG is the only club in. I mean, what kind of number are we talking about here? Because that does that seems it, it seems like bad business to bid up against yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. PSG will be in a in a position where they say, well, "Look, there's not many people who we, we're offering you this money. You're not going to get anything better than this." Um, the player will probably, you know, you know, I think Cristiano's obviously got a little bit of interest in them, and PSG just want to get their name out there all the time. They're, they're desperately taken seriously on a on a global scale, um, and Cristiano, I mean, there's no bigger name. This guy's got a movie out, you know, and everything. He's perfect for them to fit in that. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be some interesting negotiations in this summer, and I wouldn't be surprised if, well, the reports the last few days have been said that tender discussions have already taken place um, over Cristiano at the PSG. So it'll be interesting to see. I haven't seen the movie. I haven't seen his movie yet, but but I imagine it's fascinating. Um, let's move on to to, to one of the other uh, uh, gigantic stars in, in Spain, and I mentioned Neymar already, and and how how well he's been playing, and sort of the the chatter. I mean, I'm looking at the at, at the BBC right now on their website. Is is Neymar the best player in the world? Um, it's it's an open question and it's it's worth considering. But the other thing that's interesting about Neymar right now is all of this, um, all, all of the the controversy swirling around um, his financial situation and certainly his father being out in public, talking about they need some guarantees about about what about the tax authorities not coming after him. I'm I'm confused, David. Yeah, pretty much. They they're sick of the pestering that the tax authorities are giving them. But they, you know the tax authorities aren't just chasing them. Over nothing, you know. There, there is a bit of substance to uh, to what's going on with Neymar. We've seen it with the other Burton Barcelona players as well. Javier Mascherano, who was another one recently, and uh, you know, who, who admitted to what was going on. So this has to be something that's chased up, you know. And Neymar's father can't just come out and say, "Look, the, 
back off. You know, it's it, it, it's black now. <laughs> 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 All right, we're, we're not we're not staying. If you if you're going to investigate us, we're not staying. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a, a shady path to take, I think. But I think everything will be started in the end. Um, not in terms of the tax, in terms of Neymar's contract. I think he will stay. I think it's just a little okay. bit of posture. All right. It, it, see, it seems like brinksmanship, but then, you know, fathers getting involved, it doesn't, yeah. what they say does not always have to follow, uh, good logic, sound logic. They certainly have vested inch. I, I don't know Neymar's, I don't know the situation with Neymar's father and whether he's one of those good football dads or a, a bad ones. There's certainly a lot of those. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm leaning towards the latter. If you, if you look at what, I think there's too many voices who have gone against him. You look at people like the Santos president and, and there's other people, other agents, and they've said bad things about Neymar's father. And, you know, there's no smoke without fire sort of thing. And it, it's built up against him, I think. He definitely looks like a, like a bad character. Yeah, you know, let's hope that, uh, let's hope that things get sorted out. To, to sort of say we're going to have to leave the country or Neymar, and again, when you start to hear, and I don't know the, the, the language he gave these quotes in, and there may be some translation issues here, but when, when, when parents start saying we, <laughs> it's not a good Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a strange one. It's a strange one. And he could, he could have used nearly as explicit as to say, look, they, they won't chase us down in Manchester or something like that, you know. <laughs> he, he nearly went there. <laughs> uh, you know, David, it's just to bring it back to a little bit more of a sobering topic, we, we, we obviously, um, the, the football world is responding uh, to what happened last Friday in, in Paris. Um, you know, I just read a story this morning that uh, that PSG is going to wear a special message um, on their shirts for the next three matches. Je suis Paris. Uh, I imagine that Spain has responded. I imagine there have been moments of silence across uh, Spain this past weekend, and, and there will be continuing uh, tributes and, and, and shows of solidarity. But the but the the practical concern here is, of course, security and whether or not um, the 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 rest of the football world needs to respond in some manner to what happened almost happened at that Germany France match. What what is the what is the response been in Spain? Yeah, I mean, this game is high risk anyway in terms of the fans, in terms of the, the history between them. But uh, in terms of security, the league chief, Javier Tabas, he, he said, you know, he, he's um, things are going to be, they're going to judge it basically just before the game, you know, on, on the Thursday, Friday, on Friday, it'll be a, maybe a meeting. And they'll decide if there's any last minute extra measures they need to take. But this game will be high risk anyway. He said there's going to be a bit extra security around, but other measures as well will probably be looked at. I mean, Madrid's a place who, who knows all too well, unfortunately, about, about terrorism. Obviously, there's the Madrid bombings in 2004. So it's a city that, that has dealt with it, you know, and, and they know about security and what needs to be done. And with a game like this, you know, it is, it's, the, it's the world's biggest game. Um, I think across many sports, you know, there's maybe the only, the only the Super Bowl that is in parallel to it. So this game is in the eye of everybody. Um, this weekend, so I think there might be a few extra measures brought on, but with Tebas, he's playing it down, he's, he's saying we're, we're calm, we know what to do, so so it looks like everything is in order. And beyond football, um, you know, not to get into mm. the, to the politics of it, not to, uh, you know, I, I know that's not really your field of expertise, and certainly not mine, but we, we've seen how Hollande has responded in France, I mean, of course, that's where all of this happened. Um, is, there, is there going to be a wider response from Spanish authorities or are they working in concert? Are they part of this coalition? How is all of that going to, to kind of, um, and how is Spanish society deal? How does Spanish society in general deal with some of the issues France has had problems with integration, um, multiculturalism? Yeah, Spain, Spain deals with it in a different way. It's, it, I don't know. It's, uh, the culture over here, it is, it, it's still very, I think, for anybody outside looking into Spain, they, they, I think especially people in England, when I tell people back in England or something happens, they, 
they're very because of the, the language used. Obviously, we had the the Luis Suarez incident, uh, more of a language over right. the racism with Patrice Evra. So things like that, when it comes to the Hispanic or Spanish um, culture, things sometimes get a bit lost when it goes outside the country. And I think that's something that Luis Suarez tried to get across and, and other players tried to get across then as well. So it is, it's an interesting society, what, what we have here and, and how we deal with it and how you approach it. You, you really have to know the culture. You really have to understand the people and, and the history behind things. And like I say about the Madrid bombings as well, that's still something that is so sensitive here. Yeah. It's still such a, an issue. And obviously this is a country that had a, a civil war very recently, you know, in, in terms of the grand scheme of things with Franco. And, and these are things that resonate so, so much in society these days. You, you see them every day. I, I walk down the street in Barcelona and there's still reminders of the, of the past here. And it is, it's an issue that is, is here every day. And, um, and, and going back to Paris as well with Antoine Griezmann, his uh, sister obviously escaped in the concert hall. That was very much in uh, in the press here. That was the top story in the press here. The fact that it was Griezmann, an Atletico Madrid player, and he was caught up in this with his sister as well. So it is. It's it, it's very understanding what's going on here at the moment in, in France, and there's there's a good relationship between France and Spain. So. And they'll be talking, they'll be liaising. Mm-hmm. So hopefully things will be, Spain will be picking up on things from France. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there are a lot of things Spain, that Spain has to deal with on on their own, and, and certainly, uh, you know, the, the the economic situation has been uh, has been bad in, in Spain for some time, and 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 it brings me. I mean, we're talking about solidarity here. We're talking about togetherness. Talking about these countries, and you mentioned some of the history, and and certainly the authoritarian regime of, of Franco, and that stuff being fairly recent memory for a lot of people. You know, at my age, younger, where there's no memory of that at all. Um, it brings to mind the, the the Catalan separation issue as well, David. Yeah. Uh, is, is that is that an ongoing is that an ongoing issue? I mean, there continues to every now and then I'll see a story pop up that says you know that, that has someone in Barcelona saying, well, we we can't stay in La Liga if Catalan you know if Catalonia separates or, or where, where do things stand there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the moment, it's, again, it's this is something that goes on every single day, and then uh, Spanish people and Catalan people have to deal with. They're still in Catalonia, Barcelona. You know, I live here in Barcelona, so you you, you kind of uh, you kind of get away from it. It's, uh, it's in your face every day, and and it's still going on every single day. The different things in in politics and the the, the constitutions that the Catalans are going against at the moment. They're trying to break away. There was obviously the the vote here as well, and it's there's just a lot going on every single day, and the situation and the the spectrum of things is really changing every single day, but. It's interesting to see how things will things will go because I mean Rajoy he he uh, the Spanish uh, leader he he spoke the other day and he and he said that basically they won't have to they will be taken he would not like to have to take any further steps in in terms of shutting down the the Catalans wanting to basically get out because the voices are getting louder and he's going to have to listen at some point but at the moment he's really not he's, He's, he's saying it's just at a nice level right now that he can deal with, but if it goes any further, if they start ignoring laws and things like that and, mm-hmm. and passing certain things in court, then it might take on another level. Like he said, he, he doesn't want to take any further steps, but if he has to, then he will. So it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny to it's funny to have this issue come up, and I, and I only I only know a little bit about this, having just skimmed the story this morning. David, what's this proposal? And apparently, the the Portuguese uh, league officials and, and La Liga officials are going to have a meeting about an an Iberian league. Is it a league? Is it a cup tournament? What what's that? Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's something that uh, that is 
always, I don't know, kind of uh, been around. But I just don't understand how they're going to fit it in with so many with so many games going on. The terms are going to be after right. I think I, I don't want to go down to it. But I don't have to say the, the M word, where it is, it's going to be money. It's going to have to see how much yeah. money is generated from it, how that's going to go. But I, again, you play so many games across the season, I don't see the benefit of this really at the moment. You know, I don't really understand it. Um, and, and who would maybe... I don't know, like how seriously would you take it? It just it just doesn't seem feasible to me. I think it's something that might go away. <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, I mean, so much, so much of, of of again. I mean, I mentioned modern football in relation to Ronaldo going to PSG, and that not just being about his how much he can contribute on the field, but how many shirts he can sell. Money's driving so much, and, and it's hard for fans to reconcile that sometimes. Uh, but we see things like this: the the proposal of an Iberian competition of some sort, which again creates fixture congestion. I, I'm not sure I understand what the value would be necessarily to to La Liga on the whole, and maybe some of the the smaller clubs in, in Spain would benefit, and certainly I believe Portugal would benefit. Uh, but what would the what would in general what would Spanish football get out of it? And and then you know I'm I'm doing web searches here just while we're talking, and here's a headline. Now it's the Daily Mail, so take it with whatever. But maybe you can talk about this. La Liga president admits some Spanish fixtures could be played abroad. Now, when it says admits, I know that's not a commitment, but if they're considering that, that that's that's pretty monumental. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. But the, the Spain at the moment, the, the, the La Liga, the people who are behind La Liga, they're, they're trying to get the the league out out there more. They 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 know they're behind uh, the uh, the Premier League in terms of marketing. They're catching up in other ways. They're ahead in other ways as well. But that is one in terms of marketing. It's just something that they've been very poor at, and I think they admit that for the past decade or so they haven't put the, the league out there as they should. So maybe this might be an opportunity to to, to showcase a Celta Vigo against Portugal's top teams, and if Celta were to win, we say, "Hey, look, look, our our, our medium level teams can, can be your top teams." So it's something like that. But it's interesting there with the Portuguese FA who have come out right now and and said, oh, "Look, we've." Uh, we had these we had these meetings, so I, I think they might want a little bit more. I think for the Portuguese league, which doesn't really get much uh, exposure these days, I think it might be a little bit more beneficial for them. Uh, no, David, I believe that we did talk about uh, this. Uh, this <laughs> speaking of getting La Liga out there, we did talk about the investment in American soccer by Raya Vallecano. Uh, in Oklahoma City, which again, no, I, I'm sure we have listeners in Oklahoma City or in Oklahoma, and I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to talk ill of your town. It just, it doesn't strike as the the most obvious place for a Spanish club, especially a, a Spanish club like Raya, which has had financial issues, David, and, and it, immediately after the announcement, uh, and maybe we haven't talked about it this, I, I don't recall, there was a, a picture of some Raya fans who had a banner that basically said, you know, the future is is in the academy, not in Oklahoma City. Yeah. What is what is Rio's position right now uh, financially? Because that obviously speaks to how how committed they are to this project. I, I don't think it's good for for Rio to be involved in American soccer for two or three years and then disappear. And it's not definitely certainly not good for American soccer and NASL. No, absolutely not. I mean, the the, the general feeling from Rio's fans is that basically there's you know there should be money. Uh, you know the club is uh, the, the club's got one million. I think it's one million dollars. I think they said they're going to invest in in OKC in, in the offshoot right OKC, and and the fans are looking at it and look saying, look, our our facilities aren't very good. You know, we sit on two seats during game days. Uh, our Cantera, our, our the youth academy, isn't seeing as much money as other clubs are, and 
a club like Rio, they need their players to come through the academy because they haven't got much money. They can't really, they can't buy players every summer. They have to rely on free transfers. So they're basically saying, why are we, why are we doing this um, with the team, you know, in the NASL? And when there's things that need doing at home before even looking at that, if that this thing should even be looked at, the fact that it's been done, it just amuses people. Yeah, certainly. It, it seems like an odd fit. It makes me wonder. Look, there's there's not going to be. These are all independent clubs. They're gonna op, they're gonna operate uh, how they see fit. Certainly, Real Madrid and Barcelona are operating on a different level than everybody else. But is there a, is there any sense at all of some sort of coherent approach to being international? Um, you know, is the league taking games abroad really something that could have a, a significant impact? Where would they go? I mean, we're talking about. China, yeah, United States. Um, yeah, I think that's. I think that's what it'll be. I think it would definitely. I think China, the Asian market, is something that's been spoken of before. So I think that will be maybe one of the top places, and and then America as well. It's it's going to America all the time as well. But the the fact it comes down to the fact that it's Rio Vallecano. They're not a club. I don't think that should be that should be into this. And it's I, I don't know. And, and taking the games abroad at the moment, it just doesn't. It just doesn't seem. Um, Right in, in any in any way, I think there's things that need to be done at home with La Liga before you, you start going abroad. I think there's still issues with the with the games and how things are scheduled, how things are run before you start taking your product um, global, shall we say? Yeah, it's fascinating times um, for everyone. There's, there's this race, and I don't know that it's a good race. I'm not sure it's a race to success. I think it's a. Uh, I think that uh, you know, while, while I understand that there's some pressure on everybody involved to to be as um you, you know to be as um i don't know expansive as as aggressive as possible that that ultimately may not be to the benefit of of the football clearly and i imagine that there's there's a disconnect between the the, the powers that be the people who are seeing these marketing opportunities david and then the the fans of, of spanish football yeah exactly and i mean going back to rio again as well they, they they've also there's also been trouble earlier in the season as well because of their links with china as well they brought a chinese player in and and the manager of rio Vallecano didn't know who this player was he was just brought in and they, he didn't have a clue about him he didn't ask for him he didn't ask for a player in his position uh, and then he just he said i don't believe that anyone from the outside of the club should interfere in sport matters so it's impacting the, the team as well. I, I don't think that's a, that's a very good thing. So Rio is in a, in a definitely looking to get out there in China, in America. Um, so it's it's an interesting way, way they're going for mm. for a club with their values and and their core supporters. Uh, if you want to uh, continue this discussion, I'm sure David is uh, happy to answer any questions. David J A C A on Twitter is uh, is where you need to go and just follow David and and then read his stuff and uh, you'll be well informed about Spanish football, David. Thank you so much for the time. It's been brilliant. Uh, I hope we can talk to you again very soon. We'll see how this classic goes. Do you have a, a prediction for Saturday? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say uh, I'm going to say two one to Barcelona. There you go, two one Barcelona at the Bernabeu would mean a lot of things for Real Madrid. David Cartledge joining us on Soccer Morning. David, we'll talk to you. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, bye guys. There goes uh, David Cartledge. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to grab Pablo Maurer, MLSist, speaking of Spain. He happens to be Spanish. That's just a thing. He's going to talk about Team America and his long-form piece over at MLSsoccer.com on that failed experiment in the original NASL. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Probably should have gone retro with the music there, but uh, alas, I didn't have anything ready. <laughs> We're going to talk about times past, stories of American soccer with our friend Pablo Maurer. MLS ist on Twitter. He's also one of the hosts of Open Wide for Some Soccer, which is a fantastic soccer podcast program you should be listening to at backheel.com. Uh, Pablo, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. All right. So you, you wrote a story uh, about Team America, and people might not realize that there was such a thing as Team America, and uh, or at least uh, not in the, in the movie puppet form. Team America's soccer team from the, uh, the NASL. Um, first of all, give me, you know, first give me the, the, the genesis of the idea to write about this story. I mean, I was aware that this team existed, but I ne- it never, I don't know if I knew the background about it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward, but pretty, it was a pretty innovative concept in 1983. Basically, the, the genesis of the team is that the NASL, obviously, in 1983 was <clears throat> struggling badly, had lost, uh, you know, a decrease in attendance for several years. I think they were losing, <clears throat> something along the lines of $25 million a year. Um, you know, they, I think at its peak, the, the league had 24 teams, they were down to 12. Um, the writing was on the wall, if you would. You know, the league was, was in danger of folding. Um, at the same time, uh, U.S. Soccer Federation had sort of badly neglected <clears throat> its uh, national team, I think. And, and this is tough for the modern sort of U.S. soccer fan to imagine, but in uh, 1981, 1982, they played one game. You know, one friendly, that was it. Um, so what Team America was, was an attempt by the U.S. Soccer Federation and, and the NASL. Uh, what they did was, you know, collect sort of the quote-unquote best uh, American players from across the league. Uh, all the, you know, all 12 teams lent some players to Team America, and essentially the U.S. Soccer Federation entered the national team into the league uh, just as a club, you know. Um, so it's it's tough to imagine. I mean, it would it would literally be like if, if the modern-day U.S. Soccer Federation collected the best players from across MLS, the best American players, stuck them all, you know, on a, yeah. all on a team, put them in D.C., and you know, <laughs> entered them as a national team in training. It certainly so, yeah, seemed I mean, it's, desperate. Uh, yeah, it's certainly, tough to wrap your head around. You know? <laughs> see, it, it seemed like a desperate move on the part of NESL, um, as you said, in, in sort of the, 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 the closing years of the league, lots of, the, lots of things not going right for them. Uh, and, and they had the, the number of teams had, had cut, been cut in half just by, by clubs folding. I, I did like how you, you opened the piece sort of talking about how in, you know, in preparation for 1994, they brought together um, a bunch of players and, and put them in a residential camp because there was no league for them to use. And then, you know, again, juxtapose that with, with Team America. Um, there was some, 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 some concerns expressed that, that U.S. soccer really wasn't on board with this. What was the problem there? Well, uh, the Federation, I mean, they were, they were borderline bankrupt. You know, so for them it was, you know, I, I really feel like the like U.S. soccer stood more to, gain from this concept than uh, the NESL. You know, I think for them it was a way to have their national team in training, to have somebody else put the bill. Because um, bear in mind, you know, obviously the franchise was completely privately financed. It was, you know, owned by a, a New York area business, businessman, Robert Lifton, who I spoke to, um, who, you know, was sold on the idea until he could make a buck, you know. But um, U.S. soccer on their end, you know, they promised to sort of invest several hundred thousand dollars in um and marketing, they promised to schedule, you know, international friendlies throughout the year. Um, they were responsible for selecting the head coach, which they, you know, if you speak to the players, uh, you know, play for Team America, they did a pretty poor job of. I think, um, 
it's funny you could sort of draw a parallel to modern day soccer federation and sort of their chase for Jurgen Klinsmann years ago before he agreed to, to be the coach because Team America, you know, the soccer federation wanted to um, hire Renus Michels, who's obviously the, you know, the famed Barcelona, mm-hmm. uh, Barcelona IX, you know, Dutch national team coach who sort of invented, you know, quote unquote, total football. And he said, no, actually there's a quote in the piece that's pretty memorable where the soccer federation asked him to coach the u.s national team and they said how long would it take you to you know to develop an american soccer player into you know a competitive one and his response was five years that's how long it takes to naturalize foreign citizens <laughs> in this country Ouch. <laughs> i mean burn um, sick burn <laughs> yeah yeah so the federation failed on on many levels but you know to to really you have to put that in perspective because they didn't have any money. I mean, I'm not right. exactly sure what they were supposed to do. You know, I mean, it was sure it was a last gasp effort on the on the you know on, on, at the hands of both you know the NASL and the federation. Yeah, look, I mean, if U.S. soccer not having the resources, Dan, I mean, it's a very very different time. Werner Fricker in, in in charge. By the way, that's the guy that basically decided the U.S. was never going to wear red. Um, but going beyond that, um, <laughs> he you know they didn't have any. I mean, they didn't have. This is the same the same atmosphere environment that allowed uh, Chuck Blazer to become so important, selling media rights and 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 moving up the ladder as rapidly as he did, and then taking money out of the system. I, I just that's an aside. But it's out there, and, sure. and to to you know sort of illustrate what kind of different period this was. I, I believe in the piece you 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 say that the 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 sponsor they lined up for Team America was was Winston Winston cigarettes. Is that right? Oh yeah, they you know it's funny because they can uh, you know this this would be totally frowned upon in MLS or in you know in most pro sports in this country in general. But back then, uh, something sort of a something I didn't put in the piece, but it's an interesting fact. You know, the team was actually, it was based in Washington, D.C. played RFK, but they actually considered basing it in St. Louis, and the reason for that was they were after the money, and essentially the two companies that were, that had considered, you know, uh, sponsoring the team were Winston Cigarettes and Anheuser-Busch, so, you know, beer beer and cigarettes. I mean, yeah, this was an era, obviously, in NASL, where you had guys smoking in the locker room, and, yeah. you know, it was it was certainly, certainly a different time. You know, uh, it is beyond just the concept and and, and sort of the the uh, creation of this team and the reasons for it. Uh, you know, as you said, U.S. Soccer probably stood to benefit more, but they didn't have they didn't have the ability to support them as much as they might have wanted to. Um, the story of the season is fascinating, but actually, before we even get to that, the saga of Ricky Davis and whether he was going to play for uh, for Team America is 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 interesting. I guess in the end he decided to, but it, it clearly was hard for a lot of these American players to just up and leave their clubs. Maybe that wasn't a consideration on the part of the people who put the team together. They thought, oh, we'll drape them in the flag and all the Americans will come flocking. Well, so, you know, that goes back to it being sort of a desperation move because actually it turns out, you know, if you read sort of the Washington Post coverage of Team America believe this season, the league and the federation didn't even talk to the players union about, you know, whether this might be a good idea or whether the players would be on board with it. And so what happens is you mentioned Ricky Davis. Um, you know, I could write, you could write a long form on that sort of saga alone. Um, Ricky Davis, uh, you know, midfielder, arguably kind of the, the best American player of his time, you know, between 80 and 84, something like that, um, refuses to leave the Cosmos. Bear in mind, he's at the Cosmos with, you know, over the years with uh, Beckenbauer, Pelé, Carlos Alberto, Niskins, you know, uh, Escandaria and all these great players. So obviously it's a tough decision for him. 
Um, but he is not convinced that this is that this is being done really to benefit the national team or the American player. To him, it's just a cash grab. Now, his teammate Jeff Durgan, who's this you know 21 year old, um, extremely talented central defender, uh, you know, real rough around the edges, hard nosed kid. He leaves. You know, he. Uh, I think there's a he gives a quote to Sports Illustrated at the time. He says, you know, I'd rather swim with the wave than have it wash over us. So let's. Let's give this a shot because he right. knew that if the league went under, it didn't matter what team you're on. You know, he, yeah. to him it was an opportunity to save the NASL. And you know, there were a lot of players other than Ricky. I mean, Mark Peterson is a you know player for the Sounders. He refused to come. He he joined the team later in the year after the Sounders folded. But um, you know, there were a lot of American players who just didn't make the the jump, and that kind of led the the trajectory of their season, which was that they just could not score. You know, yeah. they had. Uh, Durgan and a bunch of other great defenders, but they didn't have anybody who could put the ball in the back of the net, and that that obviously cost them uh, pretty dearly. You know, but I think that is really the 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 main focal point of why the concept failed is because they didn't actually get the best American players. You know, it'd be like if the U.S. Soccer Federation did that nowadays in MLS, but they couldn't get you know Dempsey, Josie, those guys on board, and they ended up with you know, a roster of eight defenders and, you know, I don't know, the two or three sort of older, you know, American attacking players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so obviously part of this, uh, part of the failure comes down to coaching as well. I mean, uh, while, while Pedagulis is a guy, uh, Pedagulis is a guy that uh, has a, a sort of outsized reputation, or at least he's, a, he's sort of legendary for the good parts of his coaching style. He had a lot of bad things about him that, that didn't feed this team very well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Alcas Panagulia, who you mentioned, he's a, uh, you know, coached the Greek national team uh, to their first ever Euro berth, uh, won a trio of Open Cups in the 60s, and is one of these guys, and you could say it's about a lot of MLS coaches nowadays, he's one of these guys who's very, very strong on the motivational side of the game, but pretty weak tactically. And, I, you know, Tony Crescitelli, who's the forward for the America, told me, uh, you know, all he'd, essentially all he'd do is sit on the bench during practice, yell at us for a cigarette. You know, um, Alan Merrick, who's a defender for Team America, he's a naturalized U.S. citizen. Um, you know, he ended up running a lot of the trainings because Panagulius just couldn't be bothered as far as, you know, caring about the tactics. And, you know, uh, Durgan, when I spoke to him, he said, you know, yeah, you know, the the, the sort of, uh, you know, relying on American spirit and motivation stuff, that'll take you so far. But, uh, you know, eventually you, you obviously have to compete with other teams in the league, and that's, that's not something Team America could, do, could, you know, could do after a while. It was, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting to hear these guys talk about some of the talent that they saw. And, you know, Alan Merrick is, is, is quoted a lot in your story. You obviously talked to him. I, I got a lot out of him in terms of memories. But I just I, I, have, I have trouble tethering myself to how talented these guys actually were or whether the, the guys that they were talking about that maybe didn't get a chance or or were sort of lost to time because the NASL folded, how good they might have been is, is it, I mean, you know, we think of the NASL, we think of, uh, we think of Pele, we think of Canalia, we think of Beckenbauer, we think of Best, but we don't really think about the Americans too much beyond maybe Kyle Rote Jr. How good were these American players? Any, any idea at all? Well, make no mistake. I mean, the NASL basically did nothing for the American player. I mean, they, you know, obviously in MLS you have roster rules, international roster slots. I think in the NASL at some point, the requirement was that you play two American players, you know, out of, out of, you know, you're, you have, you know, four or five on your roster. Um, you know, obviously they, 
they knew where the money was. People weren't coming to the stadium typically to see a Jeff Durgan. They were coming to see, you know, Canalia or Beckenbauer. Um, as far as the talent level on that team, I mean, they were, for example, defensively, they were exceptionally good. I mean, you have players on that team like Terry Vanderbeck is a guy who's, you know, uh, the first American ever drafted straight out of high school. And a lot of these guys, Vanderbeck, uh, Arnie Mauser, you know, a lot of these guys went on to have pretty decent national team careers, mm-hmm. you know. Um, then you do have um, some of the other guys who just, you know, had one cap. And team America played, you know, as, as the U.S. national team only once. Um, against Haiti that year, you know, but I do think they were a talented bunch. I really do think it is one of those situations where they're just missing a couple of pieces, right? Maybe like a really dynamic center mid or, you know, a striker who can finish, you know. Um, and, you know, there were, Jason, there were, there were games when they had, you know, 13 players in house, right. you know, literally starting 11 and two players on the bench. I mean, it's just not, it's not a way really to, to run a successful soccer team, you know. I thought, you know, I, I wanted to mention, I thought a really interesting, side note that I didn't really write about very much, but there was a backlash at the time, um, sort of league-wide, uh, about the fact that Team America was using naturalized U.S. citizens. Right. And, yeah. you know, for example, Alan Merrick is one of these guys who was a Brit, and a couple years before joining Team America, becomes a U.S. citizen, and, you know, there were a couple other guys from all over, and there were a couple of guys on the team even who were on green cards. You know, they were like a year away from becoming U.S. citizens, but you know, seeing as how this was a team that was supposed to compete in the 86 World Cup, they thought, well, let's get them, you know, gelled right now. And I, it, it's sort of amazing to me how much, um, how little and how much things have changed, how little maybe in society things have changed. But as far as the national team goes, I mean, you know, the we're literally having conversations every day about, you know, when is Darlington Nagby going to be a U.S. citizen, you know, before it happened? Or, you know, now it's uh, Mane or, you know, any of these players, obviously, you know, as a U.S. soccer fan, you're you're looking everywhere, you know, for talent. You're not sort of rolling your eyes at a lot of these. And, you know, obviously there's no reason to roll your eyes at somebody who, um, you know, uh, becomes a citizen through naturalization. So I thought it was, right. it was really just an interesting kind of side note. Well, how well, much of, you know, well, you, the we, players we, are getting actually filed a grievance against Team America because <laughs> they played some of these naturalized guys, and they had Alan Green and, and Andy Parkinson, who were guys who were on green cards playing for them. So I thought it was... You know, just sort of an interesting well, side note. You know, I'm on I'm on the Wikipedia page, which, by the way, but don't don't go to the go read Paulo's story. Then, if you want to get <laughs> a little bit more background, maybe go to the Wikipedia page. But I mean, you click on these guys' names. I mean, you mentioned Merrick already. He's a, uh, born in Birmingham, England. Um, you know, then I just randomly Tony uh, Crescitelli, born in in uh, in Italy. Uh, there's uh, Pedro de Brito, born in uh, in Cape, Cape Verde. Uh, I mean, th- th- you know, again, these are not. Um, Alan Green, you mentioned him already. This is not like this is. If you put together this team now, which I think would be, I mean, of course, you could say, well, we've got the national team. We don't really need to do this. Uh, but yeah. if you put together this team now and only used MLS players, you would have no problem. And you would, you would be leaving off some really good players to fill this team up. I mean, you know, like, again, it's a, it's a different era. Uh, but, but I do think it's, 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 fat. and it, again, that, that, that desperation, that scramble to be relevant. Just a little bit. I mean, just to the point of maybe we can possibly yeah, I mean, I, make it to the end of qualifying. You know, yeah, you know, I think though, obviously, you look at teams like that, and it's so perfectly representative, ironically, of what this country is. You know, and you speak to, you know, I spoke to America at length, and you know, one thing you mentioned repeatedly was how proud he was to represent the U.S. You know, uh, he described in his only cap, you know, hearing the anthem, the sort of sort of cliche 
you know, uh, welling up with emotion while hearing the anthem at a sporting event thing. But it was, you know, it's all very real for all these guys, you know. So, um, and and you you made the point, you know, let's not forget this is a team they had to compete in NASL. I mean, like it, it would be almost unfair just to force them to, you know, use whichever players chose to come that were, you know, American-born, you know, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, obviously they needed players like Green and Parkinson, those kind of people to, to compete at all, you know, so it, it makes sense why, why those players joined up, you know, and like I said, I mean, there's something perfectly American about the fact that you, you rattled off these guys born in different countries. I mean, that's what this country's all about, right? I mean, and I'm the... I'm a child of a, an immigrant and you know, we all are at some point, yep. you know, so yeah. I, I, I thought it was great. You know? Yeah, no, it's, it's not, it, yeah, I don't, I'm not necessarily, it's not throwing shade at the team, although you, you did mention that the, the, the grievance, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 it was, it was, it's, it's a perfect encapsulation, encapsulate, whatever that word is, of that particular time <laughs> in American soccer. And, and as you said, we want to imagine that we've progressed so far and I think we probably have, but we are still <laughs> a nation of soccer fans going, you know, when does Nagby get his citizenship? When does Mane get his citizenship? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Is, is getting in Zalalem going to pick us over Germany? That kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Indeed. Yep. And I mean, it's, you know, it's completely fine and with good reason. You know, All right. So, so uh, yeah, we, see America. Go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Pablo. It's your story. Well, no, I was just going to put a cap on it. I mean, the, the team obviously folded at the end of the year. They, you know, Lipton says that, you know, and he. All these guys pinned this on the U.S. Soccer Federation at the end of the day. He said he lost, I want to say, $750,000 in the venture. And, you know, the these guys who thought they were going to go on a postseason sort of, uh, you know, it tour of international, you know, play a bunch of international friendlies and stuff like that, compete in the 84 Olympics, um, qualify for 86. Uh, mm. You know, after the last game against Fort Lauderdale, the owner basically came in and just pulled the plug on the whole thing. And a lot of the players who played for Team America, who took this huge chance to kind of leave the comfort of, say, the Cosmos or, you know, and, you know, any of these other teams behind, um, never even really got a shot on the national team, which is uh, sort of heartbreaking given what they risked for the concept. You know? There's some uh, fantastic pictures to go along with this story, and I believe you got some more over at DCS. Did I see that yesterday? I do, yeah. I worked uh, quickly. I worked with uh, Tony Quinn, who's kind of a legend in the D.C. area. The guy's been shooting soccer since the 70s, you know, shot Team America, the Dips. Uh, I asked him if he had any Team America photos, and he just hands me a banker's box full of negatives and slides, wow. which I, <laughs> I mean, it was like a, it was like a Christmas, basically, going through these things and scanning them. So right. I'd encourage you to go to MLS Soccer and also to DCS, uh, check the photos out. These, sort are, of, uh, these are amazing. Learn about the America. Yeah, these these are amazing. Uh, these these photos are, the, the photos on the story are great, and I can only imagine, I'm going to go check out DCS here in a couple of minutes. And can we figure out a way to get this this uh, this logo or whatever this is with the guy the, the soccer player with the ball under his arm holding on to the monument can we can we figure out a way to get that involved in American soccer again? The it's a little phallic I think. <laughs> Perhaps it is. He's sort of grasping the Washington Monument in a suggestive manner. Yeah, so he he sure, might be. But, yeah. Oh, he might be. But you uh, you know I, just, I I think that I do think their kits are probably better than anything U.S. soccer's had in the past twenty years. But that's just my you know my. Uh, my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hello, Nike. Are you listening? All right, Pablo Mauer, MLS ist on Twitter. Uh, his find his work at MLSsoccer dot com. Obviously, this story plus much more. And uh, go check out DCist for more of his stuff, including uh, abandoned DC, which is uh, not soccer but amazing. Uh, Pablo, thank you so much for the time, man. Great chat. Thanks.
Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. There goes uh, Pablo. Go listen to uh, Open Wife for some soccer as well. Great show. All right, let's step aside. We'll come back over to the phone lines and talk to you for a bit. It is Thursday. It's Soccer Morning. WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we go back on a Thursday edition of Soccer Morning, and the phone lines are now open. Give me a call. We're trying out some new music today. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. Do you guys care at all about the music? I had some, some suggestions yesterday on Twitter. If you have one, you want to give it to me. Feel free to do so at Soccer Morning, at Davis JSN, whatever. Whatever is on your mind. All right, so uh, phone line, 646-832-3909. Man, this has been a doozy. We, we had a, that, that David Cartledge interview would have been enough to carry the show by itself. David is fantastic, amazing insight, interesting things happening in Spain. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them sideways. And Pablo Mauer, this, again, this piece is awesome. It's, it's an awesome bit of American soccer history that maybe you weren't aware of. Maybe you didn't know about Team America, or maybe you had heard about it, but weren't aware of, of the background, ha- hadn't gotten into the detail. I mean, I don't know that anybody's written, collated all of this information, gone out and done the interviews, called up people the way that Pablo did to get us the background on this story. I mean, and, and it's a good thing it's happening now. And what one of the more fascinating things, one of the more fun things uh, that, that we have seen through the the uh, improvement rise of soccer in America is that we are going back and digging through our history. Yeah, some of it's bad history in terms of failure. Some of it's painful. Some of it is uh, is not glamorous at all. Some of it's dirty and and uh, just not great. I mean, clearly, if we had a great soccer history, we wouldn't have had to start another league in 1996. We wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't have single entity for that matter. We might have a lot of other things attached to soccer that would make everybody else, everybody happy. We wouldn't have all these fights that we have about philosophies and the like. But we do have history and we go, it is fun to dig back through it. I mean, again, I mentioned a couple of names. Pablo's mentioning all the names involved in Team America. Um, we're mentioning names that, I mean, everybody knows that Pele played here. Everybody knows that Beckenbauer played here. Everybody knows that Best played here. Everybody knows Rodney Marsh played here. Let's throw him in the mix. But there are other guys, there are other people involved. There are other players who, you know what, it, it, they were born out of time. And what I mean by that is a guy like Kyle Rote Jr., okay, who, who led the NASL in scoring in, in, in 1973. That guy. What if that guy was around now? What if Kyle Rote was 25 years old right now, or 20 years old for that matter, and getting developed as a player? What kind of what kind of player would he been? I mean, we could do this all day, and it's just it's mindless speculation, but it's fun to think about. A guy like Ricky Davis, probably the best American player at that time, the early 80s, didn't want to go join Team America. Felt as though he had a chance to make to make something happen with the Cosmos. 
What would what would he be if he was born ten years later and was part of that that nineteen ninety four team? What what would have happened if Ricky Davis had been able to get a real opportunity to improve his game to be part of a, a national team that actually had a chance to go and qualify for something like the World Cup? How much better would American soccer be right now, or how much how much richer would our history be? I mean, we, you know, we can't go back in time and change anything. I don't have a I don't have a time machine. I wish I did. It'd be great to have a time machine. Would you go back and kill baby Hitler? Or would you go back and fix American soccer? I think that's where we're at here. I think what we 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 have to consider how important these things are. On Back to the Future Day, we had that question: What would you do with a time machine, soccer wise? I think I'd go and fix some stuff. I don't know how I'd fix it. I have no idea. All right. 646-832-3909 Stoto S T O T O 8 would call in but uh, but on the, I'm on the phone at work have you shared your thoughts on the top uh, on 442's top 100 stadiums I I know that a couple of uh, MLS venues made it in but I haven't actually seen the entire list so I should go back and uh and re and look and look at the list I mean if you put Lobomanera on the top of the list I'm not going to argue with you how can you how can you possibly argue with Lobombanera at the top of that list? Is that is that this this year's list? Have they done this before? Yeah, this is this year's list. Lobombanera number one. <laughs> Come on, that right there makes it makes it a good list. Let's go to the phone four one four. You're on the air. Who's this? It's Ray from Milwaukee. Hey Ray, how's it going, my friend? Good. It's going good. Uh, I saw that thing about uh, Team America. Uh, I thought it was interesting. And I, uh, I did not actually know that. Uh, although, you know, I, I'm probably like the same age you are. So, I mean, but I don't really know um, outside of the Cosmos. But I would say to an extent that it, that's what European soccer does anyways. These super club teams uh, literally have seven, eight guys playing on a national team anyways. And so in my personal opinion, if MLS wanted to do something similar like that, that uh, it would help the U.S. national team greatly because that know. is what I don't seems know. to be the I mean, working method. Okay, you could argue that, that playing together breeds an understanding that would help a team, but... You're not going to get everybody into that team. I mean, that's the thing. The, the the situation, even then, even in 1983, they had problems getting everybody together and on the same page and getting the American players in the league to decide that they wanted to join this project. You know, it, they didn't, they, they had problems convincing the American players then. You're not, if you put together that team now, how many players are begging off saying, no, I like where I am. I'm not, I'm not, what? Team America? No, I want to play with the guy from England. I want to play with the guy from Argentina. I want to. I I have a spot in this team. The best American players are established in their teams. Are you going to convince Clint Dempsey to leave the Sounders? Are you going to convince Michael Bradley to leave TFC? I don't think so. To to win a World Cup, uh, if you're well, you know, it's not going to happen because the payroll. You know what I'm saying? And to be honest, I mean, you'd have to be telling some of these people to take pay cuts because uh, they fit under the current salary cap. All I'm saying is that, in my personal opinion, this is the advantage that the European soccer club teams have. And this is why not only are they extremely talented, it's not like necessarily that they all play together, 
They're extremely talented. They play together day in and day out at an extremely competitive yeah, but, league but, and an extremely competitive team. Okay, but they play in the that they they happen to play in those teams because those teams are incredibly rich and can afford to bring those players together. Barcelona, you know, puts Sergio Busquets and Andres Iniesta and, and, and Xavi and all these guys on the field together to help them win a World Cup because they have the money to bring those players in. Those players want to be in those teams because of the uh, the size of those teams, the the, the aspirations of the team, the, the just big club and, and being so popular. We don't have that condition. I don't think you can force it the other way around, right? You're not going to say, well, you have to go play for this new team we created called Team America or called Team USA or called Red, White, and Blue FC or whatever you call it because it doesn't have any cachet. It doesn't have any pull. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a matter of circumstance that all so many German players play for Bayern Munich, and it's a matter of circumstance that so many uh, Spanish players play for two clubs because those are the biggest clubs in those countries. I don't think you could do the same thing here unless you like cleared out the entire roster of the LA Galaxy and said, well, "Let's make this Team USA." Uh, I, I guess. I mean, it, it, you, you look at it that way too. But uh, the, I'm just saying that you know that uh, that uh, I believe one of the major advantages that European teams have is that they're able to to get these super club teams and uh it would be really interesting to see if uh somebody can buck that trend because mm-hmm. currently that that is a trend to win at the international level i appreciate the call ray i mean it, look it's food for thought uh whether or not we need more of our American players playing in the same club teams or if you can bring together a, uh, you cobble together a team from players who are all uh, who are spread across this country and, and other countries and and play effective soccer or not i mean i don't look there there are look chile is a good team not all of their players are playing for colo colo i mean it's not is is that even a, a chilean team i just pulled that off the top of my head but who they're not all playing for one team they're playing for yeah yeah I did good at that one. They're playing for multiple teams. I mean you you have you obviously have uh, players in Germany and England and and Spain and Italy and those players are coming together and winning things. Three hundred one, you're on the air. Hi, um, I really enjoyed Pablo's piece and I just wanted to talk about a couple of things. Having lived that time, you guys awesome. think it's a little younger. Yeah. Um, and there were some decent players there. The thing that made the NHL different than MLS was they had this requirement about having American players on the field. You had to have three American players on the field at any given time. And so, I mean, some of these guys were getting professional experience that maybe was a little bit over their head. Yeah. But they were pretty good players. And getting them onto one team was a really good idea. It was just, unfortunately, the execution of Pablo... You know, relates so, well, so and, well and, in the article. And you have terrible. to imagine, you have to imagine that if the if the infrastructure was stronger, I mean, here's the thing: this is such, this is the catch twenty two. They don't they don't create Team America unless they're desperate, and Team America can't succeed without a good base. And NASL wasn't a good base at that time. No, it was terrible, and uh, I mean, you, you know, there was no, the coaching level was terrible. Everything about yeah. it was terrible, but it was fun to watch. And uh, and and some of these players were pretty. Ricky Davis was a terrific player. Jeff Durkin was a good defender. Pablo talks about some. A couple other guys who came out of the Cosmos back then had some some skill. Borja and, and Bandoff. And then he mentioned Perry Vanderbeck was a definitely a player who you know in a different time could have really contributed. Mm-hmm. I, I think the interesting thing is actually to compare these guys to the '90 team, right? Which was all these college yeah, kids. College kids. Um, and and just you know wonder how. We might have done in 86 instead of 
you know, we have a team of well, college I mean, kids in '90 who I was I was in Italy watching them, and and yeah. they were, you know, they did <laughs> tremendously well against Italy, but they were so overmatched in right. the other games, and you could see it in their in their eyes basically when they would get the ball, they were terrified because <laughs> they didn't have the, the skills to really to to get out of trouble. Yeah, when when they were pressured. I mean, such a, yeah, as you said, yeah. such a young team, <laughs> that team uh, in 1990, and you know, you were only talking about we're only talking about six or seven years earlier, Team America. But those guys, they either aged out or U.S. Soccer obviously consciously deciding to to be focused on a young team ahead of 1994, knowing that they wanted to develop some players and, and deciding to sort of s- not sacrifice the World Cup because really there were no expectations at all in the United States for 1990, but there was never there's not a place for a 28, 29-year-old player in the 1990 team. Yeah, there wasn't. And, and it was interesting. I mean, I didn't know any of the players in the 90 team because there wasn't you know, any television of the APSL or whatever league fed into uh, into that 90 team. Um, so I was in the stands just cheering for a bunch of guys who were complete strangers. I was impressed with Ramos, mm-hmm. but uh, the rest of the team, you know, just kind of left me cold. Yep, oh, Tab Ramos. But, uh, Tab Ramos was yeah. 23 years old in 1990. He was playing uh, in Spain for a small club. I mean, we just didn't have that. You know, they're just they, they, these guys were playing for clubs that were either. I mean, <laughs> as you said, APSL. Uh, we're talking about. Uh, you know clubs that are now only operating indoor teams at this point in there if they if they even exist anymore um you know the the wash the baltimore blast i mean desmond armstrong was playing for the baltimore blast and he goes to the world cup that's that tells you where we were in 1990 yeah yeah well we've come a long way since and uh, yeah exciting. well you know but our national team still stinks so there's that <laughs> some things never change <laughs> well i think it's better than you know i mean we, we can talk about this forever but obviously I, th- I think we have better talent than is showing under our current program, and I look forward to a, a different approach. Okay, well, appreciate the appreciate the call and the memories. It uh, it certainly was a fascinating time. Thanks a lot. Uh, in in American soccer back in uh, in the the eighties with Team America, great stuff today. Great stuff from David Cartledge. Great stuff from Pablo Maurer. Appreciate both of them appearing on today's program. Uh, if you're a podcast listener, uh, please, uh, I don't know, download and listen to it many, many times because it is great stuff. All right. Anything else? Uh, you know what? Let me squeeze in one call. If, if you're going to call me, I might as well try to get it in. 631, you're on the air. Hey, what's up, man? It's Dan from New York. What's going on, Dan? Hey, nothing heavy, nothing heavy. Hey, thanks for squeezing me in. Hey, I was listening to the podcast um, the other day when you were talking USMNT and just listening to like everything you and, pa- and Pablo were talking about. I kind of just started thinking about Michael Bradley. And um, I watched his first couple games when he came back to Toronto FC. And if my eyes aren't fooling me, he was terrorizing everybody. Like, I remember watching those games. There was a game, I think it was specifically against Columbus, where the guy was just relentless. And then I watched the – it just took me back to the Montreal game, then the playoffs where he was just – I'm going to be honest with you, he was horrible. Um, At that point, I was really looking at and thinking about – a couple of U.S. MNT midfielders that are just honestly just better than him, you know, at this current at this yeah. current point. And then it kind of just brought it back to um, his last performance against Trinidad and Tobago, and where the guy was just you don't know if he's trapping the ball and just passing the ball and not even looking up for an option. But you know, this is supposed to be like our world class midfielder, mm. and you know, and just listening to the story of you know about like you know the the Americans playing at home. 
for me, I'm going to be honest with you, I think him coming back to MLS has been an epic failure on his end. And I don't put it all on MLS. I put it around his um, his supporting cast and his structure. And um, when you look at the coaches that he's been um, exposed to, kind of like your last caller was talking about the, the coaches back in those days are horrible. Really, who has he been under in terms of, like, coaching Greg Vanny? Like, you know, I, I don't really think that's somebody that's going to bring something new out of him. Again, maybe I'm just being biased, but yeah. um, I, I just really think that, a lot of these American players coming back home, specifically when you look at Bradley, I look at Dempsey as well in terms of like his performance and his, his lack of being an impact player in the playoffs. I really think it's just been a huge detriment to the program. And I just want to kind of like get your thoughts, but, A, if you agree you don't, but well, kind of like specifically on Bradley and like I'm going to be on his piss poor form sure, in MLS sure. and MS I, I can't, and I can't deny I can't deny that Michael Bradley was bad against Trinidad Tobago and that he's been bad. Too many times, okay. Too many times for the national team. Too many times for Toronto FC. I mean, he's had moments. Um, I think he's still a good player, but for whatever reason, it's not going well. And I realize that the common denominator here, when we talk about Clint Dempsey and Michael Bradley, is is MLS. And there's this immediate jump to the conclusion that MLS has ruined them or MLS is affecting their form. And I don't think that that we can eliminate that. I'm not saying that it's wrong to think that. I just I want to make sure that we leave open the possibility that some some of these other things some of these other variables are are coming to bear with these players. Clint Dempsey's getting old. I'm so, I'm sorry. I mean, he's younger than I am. I'm allowed to call him old because he's younger than me. Um, he's getting old. He is, and this is this. He's running himself into the ground. He had an incredibly intense summer with all of the the requirements that he was uh, that were put upon him with national team and and the Sounders. He was injured a couple of different times. I just think he's a rundown player. I think he's capable of a couple of moments every now and then, but he's a rundown player. Michael Bradley, I think you might be right about, you know, maybe complacency set in. Maybe he's not pushing himself. Maybe having that big paycheck being close to home with his family. I mean, he's in Toronto, not Jersey, but it's not that far away. Maybe all that stuff has infected him, and, and hopefully he recognizes and works through it. But maybe the coaching's a problem. Maybe, maybe, maybe the competition has affected him negatively. I think that not having teammates he can count on as much as he, as he could, uh, in other stops in his career maybe are part of it. But I, I don't, I mean, I don't know that we should just immediately say MLS is the problem without also considering these things. I think it's maybe multifaceted. Well, I would just highly, like, anybody listening, really go back and look at his first couple of games back in MLS. And I remember actually listening to a couple of podcasts with you and Jared on the Best Soccer Show and about you guys kind of raving about, oh, yeah, this guy is just, you know, he's the best thing since sliced bread. Like, he's, like, MLS has no idea what they're going to do with him. And then he's just, I mean, he's a he's an average player, doesn't doesn't have a good, he has a good touch on the ball, doesn't have good vision. Like, I haven't seen him, like, do a cross-field pass and, like, however. It's just short, small touches, but really poor results out of it. And, you, you know, I'm going to leave it at that. I know you're wrapping up the show. All Great right. stuff as always. I'll catch you on the day when we could chit-chat a little bit longer. But right, good just stuff. want to kind of, like, share my thoughts on that when we're talking USMNT. No, look, Thanks, the, look there's no – I'm not going to – my, my, my place here is to count – I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing. I'm not always, I'm not always in disagreement. But I think my place here is sometimes just to open up these possibilities and, and play devil's advocate even if I'm on board. But in this case, and, and I still think that there's room for a lot of different... I mean, Sebastian Davinko is a better player now than he was at Juventus, and we can't say that that's MLS, or we're not going to, right? So if, if it's MLS's fault that Bradley is terrible, then it must be MLS's, to MLS's credit that Javinko's good, right? Well, no, not necessarily. And again, because there are many, many variables at play, Javinko is clearly on a confidence high, and yeah, the defending in MLS isn't the quality of, of, of the Serie A, so 
that helps him in in the opposite direction. Maybe Michael Bradley's not being pushed as much. I don't know. Regardless, I can't argue that Michael Bradley's been good. He hasn't been good. He's been terrible. There's no argument there. He's been terrible, and I hope he gets better. On that note, let's close out this edition of Soccer Morning again. Thanks for all the phone calls. Thanks to Pablo Maurer. Thanks to David Cartledge. Thanks to producer Trevor. Thanks to people on Twitter. Thanks to my mom and my dad. Never thank them enough. Uh, thank you, soccer. And I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.